From Vermont Digger, I'm Mike Dougherty. This is The Deeper Dig. Today is Friday, May 25th. A few weeks ago, a homicide in South Burlington set off an interstate manhunt. It also renewed a statewide conversation about the lethal combination of firearms and domestic violence. The first call was from the Felman, Massachusetts Police Department. They called our dispatch center to report that a gentleman that was Leroy Hadley's brother had gone physically to the Felman Police Department to say that his brother had called him and uh, reported that he had shot his girlfriend. This is Trevor Whipple, the chief of police in South Burlington. It was also reported that it was uh, 10 Southview Drive in South Burlington. And so your officers went over to that address. And while they were en route to that address, there was a call received by Vermont 911 from someone saying that they were Leroy Headley and that they had just shot their girlfriend. What did your officers find when they got to the scene? What we've reported thus far is that they found a, at the time we didn't know, but it was an adult woman who had been shot and was deceased in that dwelling. To what extent have you characterized the relationship between Headley and the victim? I'm not sure we've, we've put a characterization on it. We've shared that the phone call was that he had shot his girlfriend. I don't recall ever, nor am I prepared to now, to really characterize what what that relationship was at that moment in time. Part of the reason I ask is because, you know, as you know, this has sparked some conversations about policy changes related to domestic violence and relief from abuse orders. I'm curious broadly, when your officers respond to a crime scene, at what point does the term domestic violence come into the conversation? How do they assess that and what do they do differently in those situations? Well, domestic violence can be very broad. When we look at domestic relationship, it could be brother-brother, brother-sister, mother-child. And uh, I I believe, and I don't want to draw an incorrect conclusion, but I believe what I'm seeing in the media is what I might more characterize as intimate partner violence, people that were involved in a romantic relationship. And are there ways that your officers treat a situation differently if they make that assessment that there is some kind of intimate partner violence happening? I think that they assess each case individually, and we have different tools at our disposal. Depending on what type of violence they're seeing, they would likely make a recommendation or offer a resource, leave a a phone number, uh, let someone know that additional services are available. For all levels of domestic violence, if officers see, you know, a potential need for some level of protection, they might recommend that an individual seek an abuse prevention order. They might explain that process. If someone doesn't want the assistance or they don't want to engage with an advocate or an advocacy organization, then they might provide them the direct 24-hour number to the Vermont court system, Mm -hmm. where an individual can reach out on their own without any assistance to uh, request an abuse prevention order. The victim in this case was Aniko Lumumba. She was 33 years old, a nurse, and the mother of two. And she had actually taken advantage of this protection order process last December. She got a temporary relief from abuse order, but then didn't show up for the hearing that would have made it final. 
In fact, Lumumba had already seen how this process worked. Back in 2016, she testified at one of these hearings on behalf of Headley when another woman was seeking a protection order against him. Your Honor, I'm not involved with her in in legal relationship or whatever she's claiming. And Your Honor, like we, the only thing I'm asking is like we don't have problem with her. She just need to stop acting jealousy and making false altercation, try to get her way of being back with him. Okay. That complaint was dismissed. But the fact that Lumumba sought help from authorities last year and still lost her life has set off a broader conversation about how these relief orders work and whether the current system leaves gaps for abuse. It starts off as an emergency relief from abuse order, which is also sometimes called a temporary relief from abuse order. This is Auburn Watersong. She's the policy director for the Vermont Network Against Domestic and Sexual Violence. If they're granted that relief from abuse order, there should be a final hearing within 10 days, according to statute. And then at the final hearing, that is the opportunity where the would-be defendant, the perpetrator, would be heard in court. And then the court would decide whether to issue a final relief from abuse order. And at the initial stage, when it's just uh, an emergency or a temporary Mm -hmm. relief from abuse order, what are they actually getting? What are the protections involved there? So at the point of a temporary, it's mostly about safety and about ordering that the perpetrator stay away from the victim, possibly ordering the removal of firearms, possibly ordering something around contact with the children. And then what changes if the final hearing takes place and Mm -hmm. that becomes a final order? So there's a number of protections they can get. The judge can order temporary possession of the household. They can make temporary arrangements around child custody or visitation if need be. There can be, um, though it's rare, there can be some discussion of finances and how that's going to work. And if somebody doesn't appear for their final hearing, the temporary order just kind of disappears? It depends. Some judges might choose to extend a temporary, though that's rare. Usually what happens is if a victim doesn't show at their final hearing, then it is is dropped. Is that common? I don't know if I'd use the word common. There are a lot of reasons why victims don't pursue their final orders. Hmm. A lot of times what happens, we find with temporary orders, is a victim will go for a temporary order, and then because the circumstance has entered the courts, things can escalate between the perpetrator and victim at that point. Victims may not follow through out of fear that their perpetrator will you know, escalate and do something more violent mm-hmm. at that time. Uh, so that's a very, very dangerous time. I think what gets lost when we start talking about, oh, victims are dropping these orders too soon, what gets lost is that Victims are often really adept at safety planning. Hmm. By the time they come forward publicly, they pretty well know where the escalation points are in their relationship. And so it's really about trusting their decisions about the safety planning that they're doing. And it may be that only a temporary is what they need and want at that time. So with that process, what are you looking to have legislators change about it right now? Where do you Mm -hmm. see the gaps? The issue that the network is looking at taking up right now is looking at that 
lethal combination of domestic violence and firearms. That's something that certainly the legislature in this past session said they recognize when they passed H-422, allowing law enforcement to remove firearms at the scene of a domestic violence incident. Really, the network is feeling like we've started to look at that lethality, but we haven't completely addressed all the places where that intersection of firearms and domestic violence occur in our statutes, and we need to be able to address that in our statute. So we're looking at asking the legislature to require the removal of firearms at the point of an emergency relief from abuse order and a final relief from abuse order. Require meaning it's not just an option for a judge to say that this takes place. This is then would become protocol that law enforcement take firearms in those situations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I want to say that I anticipate there'll be a lot of discussion around that. Currently, right now, we have a federal law that says at the point of a final order, firearms are not allowed to be uh, possessed or purchased. Mm. There's prohibition on that. And that is between intimate partners. What we would like to see on the books is that that be extended in our state statute, and our state statute and domestic violence statute, it applies to not just intimate partners, but to all household members. So that would be improving upon the federal law if we did that at the point of the final. And then we're also looking at doing this at the point of an emergency or temporary, simply because we know the lethality. And I I imagine you would see some pushback on that because at that point, the perpetrator hasn't had a chance to make their case in any way. Right. Yeah. That's an ex parte order. And so that's why I believe some other states have gone so far as to say, you know, there needs to be this critical evidence in an affidavit presented at that point of an emergency relief from abuse order. So that I think that's how some other states have, have dealt with that. But yes, I, I do imagine there'll be some some pushback on that. And, you know, and the network is open to that conversation. We're trying to figure out what is the best way to keep victims safe when there are firearms in the household and the victim is at that point of an emergency relief from abuse order. We also, when reporting on this, noted that there were other skeptics who said that guns in a household may not necessarily belong to the perpetrator. They might Mm -hmm. belong to the victim or they might belong to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Um, And that then seizing that property creates other kinds of issues. Mm -hmm. What's your response to that? So um, we've heard this argument that a firearm in the household may be owned by the victim and this, this argument that victims need their firearms to protect themselves. It's just not a lived experience, and, and data indicates that when there's firearms in the household and domestic violence in the household, that women in particular are more likely to be killed by those firearms, even if they are technically in her name than, than they are to defend themselves with those firearms. So there's data ab- around that. But also, the nature of domestic violence is about coercive control. And we need to remember that in a controlling relationship, what a victim owns and what she controls are not necessarily the same thing, right? We need to pay attention to the fact that even if she owns that firearm, within that relationship, that might not be that she controls that firearm. Part of the reason that we're talking about this a lot recently is because of specific 
criminal cases that have been in the news, but I know your organization also works to quantify domestic violence as an issue statewide. How do you Mm -hmm. go about that? Our coalition, the network office, is connected nationally to other statewide coalitions. Um, So we sort of have that view. But we also collect data from our domestic and sexual violence programs around the state. And so we know sort of, you know, who's been served, how many people, over what period of time, in what way. For example, just in 2017, over 8,800 individuals were served. That's adults and children were served at our programs. Just with any um, kind of assistance, any mm-hmm, kind of service. Any kind of sis- uh, assistance at all. And so again, domestic violence, sexual violence, stalking, all of, all of that. I was looking at recently some of the statistics around domestic violence homicides, mm-hmm. because I know this was a big part of the conversation back when those firearm laws were first being discussed in the legislature this session. There were a lot of people who were standing up and saying, you know, violence in Vermont is is not a huge problem. And I find it interesting looking at the stats around domestic violence homicides from year to year. It seems like they don't follow a clear trend. Like the numbers may change from year to year, but there's sort of a, a somewhat of a baseline that it just kind of seems is, is sort of chronically there. And I wonder how you go about trying to make the case for policy changes and resources to be devoted to this when the problem maybe doesn't seem as obvious. Right. Right. Well, it it is definitely frustrating um, to feel like we're making headway, and then the next year there's an, um, you know an incredible leap in homicides, and we've been looking at that for a while at the network. One of the things that we really came to this past year is sort of looking at decreasing domestic violence homicides across all the systems. How are we going to do that? We can't just talk about firearms alone. We have to also talk about risk assessment. For example, when law enforcement arrive at the scene, what assessments are they doing? And we have some incredible risk assessment tools out there that are being used by law enforcement officers in Vermont um, that are really, really helpful. Are these like trainings where you're kind of walking them through the process of how to determine better So what's we don't happening. do those trainings, but down in Pittsford, the police academy would do those trainings for law enforcement around um, assessment on the scene. And then what is the risk assessment pre-trial at the court process? What is the risk assessment of the perpetrator when they get released from Department of Corrections? And then the other thing we need to look at is really uh, how we're holding perpetrators accountable and how are perpetrators getting treatment. If we believe that perpetrators can actually change, then what are we doing to like put our money where our mouth is, you know, and say, how are we supporting, um, and by we, I mean the state of Vermont, is, is the state really supporting that effort to help perpetrators change, to make our community safer? And then, of course, we're always saying victims need resources and backup and everything that we can, we can do. But we got to look across the system and from victim to family to perpetrator to really put a dent in the number of homicides in Vermont. Because it does still, you know, even those programs you cited, it it seems like a really challenging thing to evaluate, Mm -hmm. you know, to identify the causation and say, because we did this type of outreach, that it resulted in in this particular change in those numbers this year. Exactly, right? It's hard to know 
what exactly is going to bend the curve on domestic violence homicide. So we need to do everything we can. And I do say to folks when we're over at the legislature, when the firearms issue seems to loom so large that, you know, in domestic violence, these are small tools that we need in our tool belt to bring an end to domestic violence. We're not like anti-firearms or or pro-gun control. Our focus is around domestic violence and victims and keeping them safe. And so really what we're trying to do is put every tool in the toolbox that we possibly can to make that happen. It sounds like these changes that you put forth this week during the special session might have kind of a long shot going through given the length of that session. If those don't advance right now, what happens next? We will keep talking about this. Um, We'll keep going forward and We're trying to be hopeful that next session we can have a deeper conversation if we can't have it at this time. And yet, you know, I feel like, unfortunately, we're at that critical moment where we really need to look at this. And and I do feel like there's some legislative support to do so. And so I'm hopeful that, you know, next session we'll be able to uh, continue this conversation. What is it that makes right now a critical moment? I mean, I, I guess I'm feeling... Uh, especially around the the relation between firearms and domestic violence and that particular lethality. I guess I'm feeling that the the firearms conversation that we had in Vermont has sort of, if you will, primed the pump for for us to have continued conversation. But at the same time, just the repeated tragedies, there's something about sort of the collective consciousness, I think, around the harm that can be inflicted when firearms are, are present in a lethal situation, whether it be mass shootings, school shootings, or domestic violence. I think that collective consciousness has been really raised over the last year or two. And I wouldn't say it's, I don't think it's necessarily started in Vermont. I think, you know, it's a national kind of consciousness raising. That has sort of put this spotlight on the fact that we've had, you know, over 83 domestic violence-related homicides since we started tracking in 1994. And I think that's just sort of, it's a tragic reality, you know? And then when another tragedy occurs, it just is highlighting it all the more. Leroy Headley, the suspect in the Lumumba homicide, is still on the run. Authorities in Albany, New York, found his car this week but there was no sign of Headley himself. I don't have any firm sighting to report. There's no concentration of effort in any one area. We're still very broadly looking for him, sharing information with law enforcement partners. His uh, biographical information has been entered into a number of national databases uh, such that if police engage with him, in uh, another area of the country, if his fingerprints are taken, if he tries to leave country where uh, Border Patrol or immigration is running a check on his name, uh, any any of those queries would trigger a, a wanted person alert. But none of those have occurred so far? Nope. Nope. And although we found his car, uh, our, our law enforcement colleagues in Albany found his car, there was no sighting of who had been driving that car no report of Mr. Headley being seen in that area. So we aren't certain how the car got from South Burlington to Albany. It, it may have been Mr. Headley, uh, you know, uh, not being seen. It may have been uh, another individual that drove it there. We, at this point, are not certain. 
Chief Whipple has also been speaking with Lumumba's relatives. I met with them yesterday uh, to tell them before we told the public that Leroy Headley's car had been found. And, you know, one of their concerns is that uh, that this matter doesn't kind of fall from people's memory. And uh, it was timely, although bittersweet, but it was timely that the car was found. It, it renews the public interest. But, uh, you know, what I would ask the, and remind the public is that really in many of these cases, uh, the way they're uh, come to the next step is through uh, the support and the help of the public. So we continue to ask the public to uh, to help us by being eyes and ears, not by intervening, but simply by observing and reporting. You know, what we hope is that somebody knows Mr. Headley or Mr. Headley sees or hears a story. And uh, we're frankly, we're, we're not going to give up till he's found. We never, we never stop. We will continue to investigate until we find him. And uh, then the, the, the criminal justice process will move to the next step. I'm curious, too, I mean, in your conversations with them, is it that they they want this case to remain in the public's mind just so that they can find Headley? Or is there is there something more to that? I don't want to speak for them. I, I've not heard them say it other than they want assistance. They want Leroy Headley found and brought to justice. But also, I think they don't want the memory of their daughter, sister, mother forgotten. Thanks so much, Chief. I okay, really appreciate thank you. it. find more reporting on the Lumumba case and changes to the relief order process at vtdigger.org. The Deeper Dig is our weekly news podcast, and we've been putting it out for about a year. We've released 50 episodes on a whole range of topics. If you subscribe in iTunes or in your smartphone's podcast app, you can scan through our full archive and check out stories you might have missed. And you'll get future episodes as soon as they land. We'll be back next week with more stories from the Digger Newsroom. Have a nice weekend.